Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So if you have your Bible with you today, and I hope you do, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 17 of 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning, which will serve as the conclusion to Peter's lengthy discussion on how to carry out everyday evangelism. See, evangelism, contrary to popular opinion, is not a special calling or a special talent that only some Christians receive. No, evangelism is a universal mission and a call that every single person who has been born again to eternal life receives. As Matthew 28, 19-20 teaches us, those of us who follow Jesus are to be making disciples of Him as we go about our everyday lives. And Peter, a close student of Christ, shows us how we are to do that. How we can adorn the doctrine of our Savior how we can underline the gospel by how we're living on a daily basis rather than undermine it. Peter overviewed how to do that back in chapter 2, verse 17, when he said, Be subject, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. Those are four ways to make sure that we're showing the Jesus that we are sharing. Those are four ways that we can make sure that we are demonstrate the gospel that we're declaring. This is what it looks like to follow in Christ's redemptive footsteps, which he laid down for us. It looks like showing proper subjection to our authorities. It looks like honoring everyone we come in contact with. It looks like loving our brothers and sisters in Christ in a humble and tender manner. And it looks like fearing God in our lives rather than fearing man or consequences. This is what Jesus did as he pursued his earthly mission of salvation here on earth. And this is what we're to do as we pursue that same saving mission as well. We are to be subject. We are to honor everyone. We are to love the brotherhood and we are to fear God. And most recently we've been exploring together specifically how fearing God contributes to the life of everyday evangelism. Though there's a lot of confusion Uh, About this subject in our culture today, the fear of God is actually an essential element to the Christian life. As the book of Proverbs and the rest of wisdom literature and scripture teaches us, it is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. It is the fear of the Lord that causes us to turn from evil and do good. It is the fear of the Lord that serves as a fountain of life and is a fountain of peace and satisfaction for us. Because it is the fear of the Lord that indicates that we truly have a covenant relationship with God and are indeed been made by His mercy and power His friends. In other words, those who are truly born again fear God. It is the unbelievers, as Paul says in Romans, that there is no fear of God in their eyes. Those who have been truly Born again, fear God. They have, as we've defined it, the reverent reflex of the heart towards God where the emotions of dread, wonder, and awe are variously mixed depending on our situation. So, for example, where there is sin, fearing God looks a lot like dread. But where there is fellowship with God and where there is a walking in the Spirit, fearing God looks a lot like wonder and awe. 
And having a proper fear of the Lord is essential to everyday evangelism. This is what motivates us to live like Jesus, who himself feared God, as Isaiah 11, 2 through 3 and Hebrews 5, 17 teaches us. And the fear of the Lord is also what motivates us to tell others about Jesus as well. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, be reconciled to God. In short, fearing God produces everyday evangelists. Peter, like a good rhetorician, leaves his strongest argument for last. And Peter shows us how the fear of God produces everyday evangelists in verses 13 through 17 of chapter 3, where he has been outlining for us six evangelistic effects of fearing God. In verse 13 to the beginning of verse 14, we saw that fearing God produces a powerful life which is exactly what Proverbs 14, 26 tells us. The fear of the Lord, in the fear of the Lord, one finds strong confidence. You find strong courage to share the gospel to those who are closest to you when you fear God rather than man or consequences. And then at the end of verse 14 and the beginning of verse 15, we saw that powerful life of testimony can only arise out of a pious heart as we learn to fear, honor, and reverence Christ more than man. That is why it's a good practice to pray the words of Psalms 86, verse 11 to yourself every morning. Unite my heart to fear your name. Because everyday evangelism begins in the heart through developing a pious heart that fears Christ above all. And that pious heart creates... And causes us to pursue two other virtues as well. That's what we discovered last week. At the end of verse 15, when we saw first that an everyday evangelist that is gripped with an exalted view of Jesus, he prepares, he he pursues a prepared mind. Peter writes, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. See, as elect exiles who are here on earth to live for the glory of Jesus Christ, we are to always be preparing ourselves to give a reasonable, intelligent answer from the Word of God as to why we teach, why we believe, and why we do the things we do. That requires preparation, right? It requires reading Scripture. It requires thinking about Scripture. It requires memorizing Scripture. It requires thinking about Jesus and the gospel greatly in our lives. And we must always be doing this. We must become a gospel-centered people so that we might always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us. And when those opportunities come to share the doctrines and the truths of the gospel and of Jesus, we must proclaim it, Peter reminded us, with a polite tongue. That's what Peter adds at the end of verse 15. He says, yet do it with gentleness and with respect. See, our passion for Jesus must not only lead to a prepared mind, but to a polite tongue, because no one is going to listen to the gospel of grace if it's delivered in a graceless manner, if it's delivered in a harsh or disrespectful way. We must honor those who have been made in the image of our God and Savior, and in the fear of Him, we must speak to them always in a polite tongue. Well, today we're going to see two more evangelistic effects of fearing God. And that is the pursuit of a pure conscience in verse 16 and a proper perspective in verse 17. A pure conscience and a proper perspective. These are the evangelistic effects of 
fearing God. Fearing God produces a powerful life, a pious heart, a prepared mind, a polite tongue, a pure conscience, and a proper perspective. And so with all that in mind, if you would please stand with me out of reverence for the Word of God as I read our passage this morning from 1 Peter 3, 14 through 17. The Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words and instructions for us today so that we might grow in our everyday evangelism. He writes in verse 13, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is the word of God who blesses us when we turn from wrongdoing to walk in his ways. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it reminds us of the majesty and the glory of our Savior. Father, I pray as always that this morning you would exalt Jesus Christ in our midst because we we know from your word that to know him is to love him and to love him is to serve him. So show us the glory of your son Jesus so that we might become worshipers of him in our everyday lives and in the worship of him we would tell everyone about the treasure of our hearts. Father, make us everyday evangelists by your Spirit from the heart. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So after Peter shows us the evangelistic effects of a powerful life, a pious heart, a prepared mind, and a polite tongue. He then shows us that fearing God produces another evangelistic effect. And that is, it produces a pure conscience, which is essential to everyday evangelism. Verse 16 says, Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So one of the ways that we can remain ready, ever ready, to tell others about Jesus and his saving power is by, as Paul says here in verse 16, having a good conscience. Having a good conscience. And that word having really means keeping or maintaining a good conscience. This is critical if we're going to engage in everyday evangelism. If we're going to engage the lost with the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ, we've got to maintain within ourselves a good conscience. Now, what is a conscience? I've never had the chance to teach on this yet, and so I want to make this clear. A 
your conscience, it is that inner moral compass that every human being possesses. It is that internal moral awareness that either accuses you of guilt and wrongdoing or excuses you of it. Your conscience, in other words, is that inner part of you that tells you, oh no, what I just did was wrong. Paul talks about this in Romans 2, verses 14 through 15, when he writes, When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they show that God's law is written already on their hearts. Their conscience bears witness when their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So that's your conscience. It is your inner moral compass. It is your inner moral awareness that either accuses you or excuses you. So every human being has a conscience. This is something that God has built into every person. But not every human being has what Peter describes here as a good conscience. A good conscience is a conscience that I would call morally accurate and sensitive, right? It is a conscience that agrees with and responds to God. Those who are apart from Christ, who are still dead in their trespasses and sins, they do not have a good conscience. Rather, Scripture teaches teaches us that they possess a defiled, a seared, and an evil conscience, right? Because that is what it means to be in Adam, right? You You are depraved. Every element of your life has been touched by sin. And so before Christ, you possess a defiled, a seared, and an evil conscience. So first, they possess what Titus 1.15 calls a defiled conscience. That's a conscience that has been tainted by sin that doesn't always point due north. So an unbeliever might sometimes, and we see this in the world around us, an unbeliever might sometimes feel deep down that something is right and or wrong, but could be completely off about it. You usually see this when there's some glaring inconsistency in a person's moral compass. For example, like when someone is wholeheartedly for protecting embryonic turtles in their shell, while also being wholeheartedly for aborting embryonic humans in the womb. And they're sincere. How do you explain that? They have a defiled conscience, an inconsistent one, tainted by sin. Why is one embryonic life precious to you and another embryonic life not? And if they continue in that defiled conscience and don't respond and adjust their morality in light of God's word, that leads to what 1 Peter 4.2 describes as a seared conscience. So that is a conscience that is insensitive to truth. This is what... Uh, This is when you show someone that what they're doing is inconsistent or wrong, like I just did, right? (laughs) And they sit there and say, I don't even care, right? Or they say something like, well, maybe that's true, but if that is true, I'll just ask for forgiveness later. That is a seared or a calloused conscience. They no longer are bothered by what sometimes even they know is wrong. As Jeremiah 8.12 says, they have no shame at all and they no longer know even how to blush. And if that type of hardened activity continues, it leads to what Hebrews 10.22 calls an evil conscience. So that is the opposite of a good conscience. It is a conscience that, as Isaiah 5.20 says, calls evil good and good evil. And we're living in a world like that. We literally have people with almost religious zeal towards unrighteousness in our world. This is what it means to be lost. 
This is what it means to be dead in your trespasses and sins. It means to have a defiled, a seared, and an evil conscience. But you know the good news? Jesus Christ can remove that defiled, seared, evil conscience, and he can give you what is described in this verse. A good conscience, a conscience that agrees with, is sensitive towards, and responds to God. That points due north. That is what Hebrews 9.14 states. It is the blood of Christ that purifies our conscience from dead works to serve a living God. And again, Hebrews 10.22, it says that that in Jesus our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. It's washed away. I mean, this is one of the many glories of our salvation, of what happens when we are born again by God's mercy and power. We are given a good conscience that finally, at last, agrees with and responds to God. But Peter makes it clear here in 1 Peter 3.16 that we as believers are to maintain this good conscience. That's why he says here we are to pursue having a good conscience. In other words, once Christ cleanses your conscience from dead works, we're to keep it cleansed from dead works, right? Once we receive a conscience that does not accuse us of guilt, we are to keep a conscience that does not accuse us of guilt. And once we possess a conscience that can agree with and respond to God's word, we are to keep a conscience that agrees with and responds to God's word. We are to keep and maintain having a good conscience. And there's only one way we can do that. And that is by confession and forgiveness. It's by making sure that we have no record of wrong standing between us and God or between us and another person which we have not endeavored to make right. And again, we do this through either confession or forgiveness. So first, a person who maintains a good conscience beneath the fear of God, because again, I don't want to just say this is a good conscience. I want to help us think through this. A person who maintains a good conscience in the fear of God for the salvation of the lost is going to be someone who is marked first by confession, someone who confesses their sins quickly. Ephesians 4.26 says, Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And Matthew 5.24 says, leave your gift at the altar and go. In other words, if you need to, pause worship and be reconciled to your brother. In the fear of God, confess your sins quickly to maintain a pure conscience under the fear of God. Second, a person who maintains a good conscience in the fear of God is going to confess their sins specifically. David said to God in Psalms 51 verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned. Even our sins against others are ultimately sins against God and his revealed commandments. Therefore, just to generally say to someone, sorry, I really messed up. It was a mistake. That's not good enough for a Christian. It is not treating the specific sin as grievous as it is in the sight of God. It is not sufficient to confess that we are generally sinners or that we generally have sinned. We need to be specific. We ought to say this, and by the way, if you're parents, this is one of the ways you can encourage your children. We need to say this. I am sorry for doing this. That was a sin. Will you please forgive me? Specific confession addresses the specific importance of specific sins. 
As the Westminster Catechism or Confession of Faith, excuse me, puts it, men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. So a person who maintains a good conscience and the fear of God is going to confess their sins quickly before God and others, specifically before God and others, and then finally they're going to confess their sins continually, continually. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and does not sin. Rather, Proverbs 24.16 states, The righteous man, he falls seven times, yet rises again. So it doesn't matter how many times we fall or how many times we sin. As those who have been made righteous through faith in Christ Jesus, we need to get back up again. We need to confess our sins before God and those that we have wronged. We need to confess them quickly, specifically, and continually. So a person who maintains a good conscience beneath the fear of God for the sake of the evangelism of the lost is going to be someone who first confesses and then second, as I mentioned before, forgives in the exact same ways, quickly, specifically, and continually. Where there is no forgiveness, there is no clearing of wrongs. And so a person who is maintaining a good conscience beneath the fear of God is not going to be like that unforgiving servant who is mentioned in Luke chapter 7 but will rather be someone who heeds the command of Matthew chapter 18 to forgive as many as 70 times 7. This is how we can, as the Puritans put it, keep short accounts with God and with man. So this is how we can, as Peter puts it, have and maintain a good conscience. It is by confessing and it is by forgiving sins quickly, specifically, and continually. And even though we might not think about it, this is to draw this all back into the main point, even though we might not think about it, maintaining a good conscience through confession and forgiveness is crucial when it comes to evangelism. When's the last time you have been overcome with a life-dominating sin and at the same time been faithful in talking to other people about Jesus Christ and their need of salvation? I don't think you'll find much of an overlap there, and that's for a reason. Maintaining a good conscience is crucial when it comes to evangelism in two main ways, I would put it forward to you. A good conscience is crucial first for confidence in evangelism, personal confidence in evangelism. If the Word of God is not at work in us, then we will begin to doubt whether it can be at work in others as well. If we are not being continually cleansed and transformed from the inside out, we will begin to doubt whether others can be cleansed from the inside out as well and transformed. How can you defend the validity of your faith if your own life isn't confirming the validity of it? But... If we experience on a daily basis the cleansing power of God that comes through constant confession and forgiveness, then we will have no problem declaring to others the cleansing power and peace that we ourselves experience on a daily basis. In other words, the gospel will become the good news not only for an event in the past, but the good news each and every day. One that you are preaching to yourself as you confess and repent of your sins and one that you share with others to call on them to confess and repent as well. So a good conscience is crucial first for confidence in evangelism. Second, a good conscience is crucial for courage in evangelism as well. A good conscience gives us peace within. Can I say when you have peace within, you can handle a lot of battles without. But a conflicted conscience drains your courage. 
How can we boldly witness for Christ if our own consciences are witnessing against us? It drains our courage. But a good conscience empowers it. It empowers it. So that's what Peter says here at the end of verse 16 when he writes this. Having a good conscience, why? To what purpose? He says, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Notice, a good conscience corresponds with what? Good behavior. But that's not going to be any protection, by the way, against the world's hostilities. In fact, Peter says here, we as Christians are going to be slandered. It's a fact. We are going to be misrepresented. And so Peter says here, when the world does slander you, make sure they're slandering you for good behavior, not for bad. Keep up that pure and that good conscience. Why? It's because when you demonstrate Christ-like humility, respect, love, and devotion in the face of all their slander, they're going to be the ones that are put to shame, not you. Peter's comrade, the Apostle Paul, by the way, he knew about this thoroughly. When you read his letter of 2 Corinthians, you learn that Paul was being dreadfully slandered by his opponents. He had opponents that were shredding his reputation and that were spreading lies about him, saying horrible things that were not even close to being true. And yet Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, simply says this, Our confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience that we have behaved in this world with simplicity and with godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so towards you. In other words, Paul says, they can say whatever they want because I have a good conscience. And because of that, he could continue in his gospel work without shame. He could continue on boldly proclaiming and plainly proclaiming the gospel because he had a clear and a good conscience. So can we. So can we. When we have a good conscience, we can be at peace, calm and confident in the truth, no matter what's said about us. See, the secret to a good conscience is not perfection. Secret to a good conscience conscience is repentance and forgiveness. Applying the gospel to our lives. And in the face of our good behavior as we repent from what is wrong and hold fast to what is good, others will feel the shame of their wrong behavior and might actually become convicted. And that's what Peter's saying here in verse 16. Live in such a way that when anyone tries to condemn you, they're the ones that walk away in shame, not you. Because they were in the wrong, not you. What a reminder that our own life is our best argument and our best defense for the validity of saving faith in Jesus Christ, even though that's terrifying to think about. The argument of your lips may not bring others to feel shame and guilt about their sins, but the argument of your life will. So if you want to be used by God to draw others to Jesus Christ, then you cannot escape that everyday evangelism begins right here. By confessing and forgiving sins quickly, specifically, and continually in order to pursue a pure conscience. Because this is what the fear of God produces. The fear of God produces a pure conscience. And finally, in conclusion, fear of God produces a proper perspective in verse 17. Peter says this in verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And that's pretty straightforward. Peter says that we who are followers of Jesus Christ, we are going to be slandered. Notice he says that. 
that is going to be slandered. We are going to suffer. Indeed, he says that it will often be God's will for us who follow Jesus to suffer in this life. Can you just think about that for a moment, how countercultural that is to American Christianity? There are entire movements of people who say God wills continually for you to be healthy, rich, and successful all the time. He wants you to be living your best life now. And if you're not experiencing life in that way, and if you're suffering in any way, then you must be doing something what? Wrong. I wonder, what in the world do people like that do with a verse like this? And with a book like 1 Peter? And with a Bible like this? That teaches us the very opposite, indeed, the very example of Christ himself. Who, though he was the perfect man and always did what pleased the Father, what was the path that he must take to go into glory? It was a path of suffering. And you think you'll make it to glory any other way in this life? This Bible teaches us that often it is God's will for his own people to suffer for doing what is good so that we might show the life of Christ all the more clearly. That's what Peter's been showing us. We who are elect exiles, who are followers of Jesus Christ, we are going to walk the same path to glory that Jesus walked, which means that we are going to slander, we are, we are going to be slandered, we are going to suffer, and therefore Peter says, if suffering is going to come, and it is, then handle that suffering the same way Christ did. Let it come for doing what is right, not for doing what is wrong. Just like Peter taught back in chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, suffering because you did what is wrong doesn't count for anything. But suffering for doing what is right, that is a gracious thing in the sight of God. It is a picture of grace. It is better to suffer for doing good than to suffer for doing evil. Do you believe that? It is better to suffer for doing good than to suffer for doing evil. Or to put it another way, which has been easier for me to remember, It is better to suffer than to sin. It's better to suffer than to sin. That's exactly what Jesus calls us to believe at the very beginning when we follow him, is it not? If anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. For the one who seeks to save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake and for the gospel, he will save it. He will find it. It's better to suffer than to sin. This is the proper perspective that you and I need. If we're going to get away from idolizing our relationships and if we're going to get to plainly proclaiming the gospel to them. This is the proper perspective we need if we're going to live powerful lives that plainly proclaim the gospel to those around us. We have to have the mindset. We have to have the mindset that is better to suffer than to sin. And that's often the choice that's put before us on a daily basis, is it not? Not just in the area of evangelism. Today, will I do what is easy? Will I do what is right? Will I do what promises me comfort, security, and safety? Or will I do what God is telling me to do no matter the consequences? If we're to grow in our everyday evangelism, if we're going to grow in showing proper subjection, honoring everyone, loving the brotherhood, and fearing God, if we're going to grow in our ability to demonstrate the gospel that we are called on to declare, then we've got to develop the conviction. It is better to follow principles rather than pragmatism. 
It is better to choose Christ rather than comfort. It's better to suffer than to sin. It's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. It is better. And how do we know that? I'm going to steal a little bit of the thunder for next week's message. How do we know that? Peter's going to show us next time in verses 18 through 22 why it's better. He's going to show it to us through the example of the one we're following, Jesus Christ. Because he says this very next verse, for Christ also what? Suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And then verse 22, he who has suffered has now gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. That's how we know it is better to suffer in this life than to sin, because look at Jesus, our great example, the anchor of our faith the author and finisher of it though he suffered at the hands of sinful men he is now exalted at the right hand of god in glory so keep the proper perspective it doesn't matter what the world thinks of you it doesn't matter what the world asks of you all that matters is what god thinks of you all that matters is what god asks of you And when we keep that proper perspective under the fear of God, then we will be able to proclaim Christ with courage and with a clear conscience in the face of cruelty. Like Martin Luther, who stated before the church council in 1521 under the penalty of death, here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Martin Luther was able to do that not because Martin Luther was a superhero. He was able to do that simply because he had a proper perspective and he had a clear conscience under the fear of God. He knew that what he was he knew that what he was believing and what he was doing was right. Not because church councils affirmed it, but because the word of God said it. And he knew that though it cost him his life, it is better to suffer and do right in the sight of God than to sin and do what is wrong. That was his perspective. That must be ours as well. We must pursue a clear conscience and a proper perspective this week so that we, under the fear of the Lord, would enter into every relationship that we have with a powerful life of witness that does not fear and does not idolize anything here on earth, but fears and worships Christ alone as holy. May God give us grace to pursue such a clear conscience and a proper perspective this week. If you have been noting that your cowardice in the gospel, and we all have it, has been taking hold in a certain relationship in your life, repent of it. Confess that sin to the Lord. Return to that pure 
conscience and powerfully proclaim the gospel to that individual this week as God has called you to do. Some very simple questions I want you to think about in light of this passage. First, for the glory of Christ, salvation of the lost, what sins do you need to confess where you're seated right now? What actions of repentance do you need to do the moment this service ends? What do you need to confess to the Lord? Second, what person do you need to forgive? Your testimony for Christ is going to start right there. With pursuing a clear conscience and a proper perspective beneath the fear of God. Because this is what fearing God looks like. It doesn't look like wearing certain type of clothing. It doesn't look like shaping your home culture to be something that looks religious. Fearing God starts here. This is what fearing God looks like. And this is what fearing God produces. It produces a powerful life, a pious heart, a prepared mind, a polite tongue, a pure conscience, and a proper perspective. That is someone who fears the Lord. In short, fearing God produces everyday evangelists who picture the very Jesus they proclaim by being subject, honoring everyone, loving the brotherhood, and fearing God. So for the glory of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, may we heed the Apostle Peter's instructions. May we dedicate ourselves to becoming everyday evangelists that shine like lights in this dark world so that others may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Let's pray to God that he would make us a people who underline the gospel by our lives and not undermine it, and that demonstrate the saving gospel, we declare. So this is the word of God from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience in, in the fervent care of one another until Christ, who rules our hearts, rules over all. To that end, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is living and active. It all it cuts to the thoughts and intentions of our heart. It discerns, it shapes, it molds even our consciences. And we thank you for this. Father, we know that there are many areas in which this message encouraged us. As we're reminded, this is what we must be about this next week for your honor and for the salvation of the lost. It also convicts. Father, there is... There is areas in our lives that we need to confess to you. There are perhaps people in our lives and relationships that we need to forgive. There's a proper perspective that we need to take into every day that perhaps we've been ignoring, that perhaps we've been living for comfort. Perhaps we've been pursuing pragmatism of what makes sense rather than listening to what you say and what you're asking us to do. Father, I just pray as the psalmist led us, unite our hearts to fear your name so that in the fear of you, we might have strong courage to both demonstrate and declare the gospel of Jesus Christ who has saved us and is saving us 
and will save us. Help us to do that by our lives and by our words, by your grace and by your spirit. We commit ourselves to you in this great cause of our generation and of our time. In Jesus' name, amen.